This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We're here today to consider nominations for four important positions. Dr. Deborah Lipstadt to be the Special Envoy to Monitor and Combat Antisemitism, Ambassador Laura, Laura Zogu to be Ambassador to Honduras, Assemblyman Nick, Nicholas Perry to be Ambassador to Jamaica, and Ms. Randy Sharna Levine to be the Ambassador to Portugal. Congratulations to each of you. We appreciate your willingness and the sacrifices that are made not just by you, but your families who are part of this process to serve our country in this capacity. Uh, I know that the majority leader is uh, on his way uh, to introduce uh, some of our nominees, but I see that Senator Rosen is with us, so I'll recognize her at this time to introduce uh, Dr. Lipstadt. Chairman Menendez, thank you, and uh, Ranking Member Risch. I really want to thank you both for holding this important hearing on the nomination of Deborah Lipstadt to serve our nation as Special Envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism, which last year was elevated by Congress to rank of ambassador. Dr. Lipstadt has devoted her life to fighting back against anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial. She's a renowned scholar of Holocaust studies at Emory University, who has published multiple books on anti-Semitism and Holocaust denialism, and who famously defeated a libel suit brought against her by Holocaust denier David Irving. She is, arguably, the nation's foremost expert on anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial, with over four decades of groundbreaking scholarship. And her nomination comes at a critical time in the fight against anti-Semitism. In the United States and across the globe, we are witnessing a significant rise in anti-Semitism, violent extremism, and Holocaust distortion and denial. From swastikas spray-painted in public synagogues, uh, in public to synagogues being attacked, we've recently seen heinous acts of harassment and violence targeting Jewish communities. We're also seeing an alarming rise in Holocaust distortion and denial worldwide. More and more people are vocally questioning, trivializing, or outright denying the atrocities of the Holocaust, eroding the truth of one of the worst chapters of human history, and dishonoring the memory, dishonoring the memory of the six million Jews who were murdered. As co-founder of the Senate's Bipartisan Task Force for Combating Anti-Semitism, my mission has been to confront this head-on. Alongside my colleague, Senator James Lankford, we brought senators from both sides of the aisle together to address this growing crisis. With dedicated leadership in place at the State Department, we can put a stop to these disturbing trends. I'm honored to introduce to you today an exceptionally qualified nominee to serve as Special Envoy and take on global anti-Semitism head-on, no matter where it rears its ugly head. And while Senator Langford couldn't be with us in person today, he submitted a statement for the record in strong support of Dr. Lipstadt's swift confirmation, because we both recognize the urgent need for American leadership in combating global anti-Semitism. Dr. Deborah Lipstadt has an extensive record of combating and calling out anti-Semitism, no matter which side 
of the political spectrum it comes from. And with this tough but fair approach, she will serve a vital role in our nation's critical work to protect Jewish communities and combat anti-Semitism across the globe. We can't waste any more time. I urge my colleagues to advance her nomination so she can lead the State Department's efforts to improve the safety and security of at-risk Jewish communities, promote accurate Holocaust education, and ensure foreign leaders condemn anti-Semitic discourse. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Rosen. And I know that you have a busy schedule, so whenever you feel it appropriate, you're welcome to, to, to leave. Um, Senator Schumer is here, and I know he wants to speak and introduce both Mr. Perry and Ms. Levine. Thank you very much to Chairman Menendez, to Ranking Member Risch, and all the members of the SFRC, this great committee, for the opportunity to introduce two really outstanding nominees uh, this morning. Um, it's my honor to introduce a proud New Yorker, a dear and longtime friend, we've known each other for 30 years, uh, and fellow Brooklynite, Nick Perry, to serve as the next U.S. Ambassador to Jamaica. I worked hard to make sure President Biden named Nick for this post, and I'm glad to finally be here introducing him to the committee. He's here with his wife, Joyce, his son, Nicholas, and he has one granddaughter, um, Justin Skye, who's a famous recording artist, so she couldn't be here today, but made good. Local girl made good. Now, whether I'm back home in Brooklyn, whenever I'm back home in Brooklyn, particularly at the West Indian Day Parade, I ask folks, what's the biggest island in the Caribbean? I tell them it's a trick question. You know, some people say Haiti, some people say Cuba, some people say Barbados. I say, no, it's Brooklyn. We have more Caribbean immigrants than anywhere else, and it's a great and wonderful, hardworking community climbing up that ladder and being part of the American dream. And this makes Nick Perry not only an outstanding nominee because of his qualifications and who he is, but an exceedingly fitting nominee to serve as our next ambassador to Jamaica. He's a native of the island, and Nick Perry would be the first ever, the first ever Jamaican-born person to serve as its American ambassador. It's truly an important milestone, one that I would add is long overdue. Back home, Assemblyman Perry is, known, is a well-known face in the community. He has a knack for doing politics the old-fashioned way, shaking hands, showing up at every event, and just listening to people from everyday life. Nick's an immigrant, he's a veteran, and a longtime public service servant, and he represents the best of what America is all about. I am certain that Nick will be a wonderful ambassador to Jamaica. And one other thing I'd note, he has a beautiful tenor voice, sort of like you, Mr. Chairman. And he is often asked to sing the Star Spangled Banner at a multitude of events uh, throughout Brooklyn and throughout New York. It is also um, my great honor to introduce another great New Yorker, Randy Charno Levine, nominated by President Biden to serve as the next U.S. Ambassador to Portugal. I was proud to urge the Biden administration to name Randy for this important post, uh, 
And when confirmed, she will become only the second woman to head our diplomatic mission in Portugal. I've known Randy and her husband Jeff, who's right there, um, uh, for over 30 years. And Randy, in particular, has been one of our city's top philanthropic forces for decades. Few have advocated as passionately and tirelessly for New Yorkers as Randy and Jeff had. And I'm particularly grateful for the work they've done in support of New York's Jewish communities. It's been a blessing to see firsthand their leadership, their generosity, and most of all, their desire to bring people together. As chair of the Meridian Center for Cultural Diplomacy here in Washington, Randy has been one of our country's best leaders, promoting cultural exchanges between students, diplomats, and businesses. In other words, she has already advanced in a different context the work any good ambassador must accomplish, encouraging understanding between our country and those across the world. And as trustee for the new museum in New York, Randy has also worked with established and emerging artists from Peru to Italy to Portugal and more, lifting up the voices of women artists and bringing their work to American audiences. I have every bit of confidence that, I, that Randy will represent the U.S. with distinction to Ambassador Portugal, and I thank the President for acting on my recommendation. And one more point, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for your indulgence. Uh, though I am not introducing her this morning, I know that Senator uh, Rosen has, I want to recognize the nomination of Professor Deborah Lipstadt to serve as the State Department's Special Envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism. I'm glad she is getting her confirmation hearing today. The malicious poison of anti-Semitism must be confronted whenever it rears its ugly head. Sadly, we've seen a spike of anti-Semitism here at home and around the world, making this post at the State Department all the more urgent. As one of the nation's top scholars on the Holocaust and on modern-day anti-Semitism, Dr. Lipstadt ought to be confirmed as soon as possible we just saw a few more anti-Semitic incidents in Williamsburg uh, yesterday in New York. I want to thank the committee for holding this hearing, and I want to congratulate her on her nomination. Finally, I don't want to leave out, since I've spoken on three of the nominees, I'd like to welcome the fourth, uh, Laura Dogu, the ambassador to Honduras, a distinguished member of our Foreign Service, and I thank her as well for her service. I thank you, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member. Uh, for your um, allowing me to welcome these guests. Well, thank you, Mr. Leader, for those um, glowing introductions. And I know that you have an incredibly busy schedule, so you're welcome to thank depart you. when you feel it's uh, appropriate. Uh, let me turn to uh, the nominees. Uh, let me welcome world-renowned scholar Deborah Lipstadt to be considered as the first special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism with the rank of ambassador. Uh, I'm truly disappointed it took this long to schedule your hearing, and I look forward to your swift confirmation. Uh, I have received a number of letters in support of Dr. Lipstadt's nomination, and I would ask uh, unanimous consent that they be entered into the record. Without objection, so ordered. Anti-Semitism is rising across the world. We see it inscribed in textbooks for children across the Middle East, violent attacks on on Jewish communities, anti-Semitism is rising across the world. Uh, the defacing of religious buildings and graveyards, every year more Jewish people around the world, from Europe to Latin America, 
to, in my home state of New Jersey, are increasingly fearful for their safety. History has taught us that rising anti-Semitism goes hand in glove with authoritarianism, racism, and oppression, and I believe you will be a huge asset to the department as it works to combat this centuries-old scourge. I'm pleased to welcome Ambassador Laura Dagut, who uh, our nominee for Honduras. Since 2014, the United States has intensified its engagement with Honduras, along with its neighbors, El Salvador and Guatemala, to address the security challenges, low levels of democratic governance, and high levels of extreme poverty that drive irregular migration. During this period, I have repeatedly urged that we use our foreign assistance to make significant investments in the rule of law in Central America and increase accountability for elites involved in criminal activity. I welcome the Biden's administration focus on these issues. Given repeated natural disasters, endemic levels of criminal violence in Honduran society, and the impact of COVID-19 pandemic, I have also led calls for the administration to redesignate Honduras for temporary protective status. I look forward to hearing our nominee's assessment of country conditions in Honduras and how the United States can best address ongoing governance challenges. I'm also pleased to welcome New York Assemblyman Nick Perry, the President's nominee, to be our next ambassador to Jamaica. Jamaica is a key U.S. political and security partner in the Caribbean, as well as in the Organization of American States. We know that COVID-19 has hit Jamaica and its economy especially hard, and I look forward to hearing from our nominee how the United States can support pandemic recovery efforts. Additionally, given major investments by China in Jamaica, I look forward to hearing from our nominee about the risks to U.S. national interests and how we can strengthen relations with our neighbor. Finally, let me welcome Ms. Levine to the committee. Congratulations on your nomination. Portugal is an important friend and ally of the United States. Uh, and as I'm sure you know, I think we had a, a, a conversation yesterday, which I enjoyed your visit. We have a robust Portuguese-American community in New Jersey uh, whose contributions to our state are immeasurable. Portugal's role in NATO is essential to transatlantic security, including through its leadership of Baltic air policing missions. Portugal hosts the Naval Striking and Support Forces, NATO headquarters, and the U.S. 65th Air Base Group at Lajiz Airport, Air, Air Base. The U.S. is Portugal's largest non-EU trading partner, and our trade and investment relationship continues to grow. I look forward to your swift arrival in Lisbon to continue to bolster our strong relationship with a key partner and ally. Uh, let me turn uh, to, for this hearing, the distinguished ranking member of the Western Here Subcommittee has um, uh, had a coup, uh, and uh, <laughs> Senator Rich has actually graciously conceded to him uh, presiding over this hearing. Senator Rubio. <coughs> Anytime uh, two Cubans are in charge of anything, it's usually called a conspiracy, but um, I appreciate the opportunity to share the co-chair or to be the ranking member on this today. I'm, thank you all for being here. I'm, I'm very happy to see the president uh, has uh, made these nominations to Honduras and, and to Jamaica. Senators Menendez and Kane and myself sent a letter urging that he nominate qualified individuals uh, throughout the Western Hemisphere. These are two important posts, starting with Honduras, um, you know, the pandemic, put more than 400,000 Honduras out of work, and then uh, two hurricanes that caused almost $2 billion in damages to a country that uh, really couldn't afford it. And then on top of that, the energy sector is actually one of the least efficient in the entire region. I think uh, 
It costs them about $450 million annually uh, with 29% uh, of energy produced lost in the transmission. So it's, it's a very serious problem. They have a new government. And, uh, and I hope that this new, new government will take the opportunity to implement uh, common sense reforms uh, that will make it a place that's more amenable to foreign investment. Uh, those things that I think could end up uh, resulting in things like nearshoring uh, of U.S. supply chains, which uh, we talk about that all the time. Uh, why aren't most things, more, if more things were being made in nations like Honduras closer to our country, we would have a more secure supply chain and we'd be less reliant on disruptions coming from other regions of the world. So I, I hope the new president will, will follow that path and, and not the example that was set by her husband when he was the president and and cozied up to Chavez in Venezuela and Raul Castro in Cuba. And, and uh, you know, I'm concerned that she has uh, openly suggested the idea of perhaps switching recognition from Taiwan to the People's Republic of China. So, Ambassador Dogu, if you're confirmed, I hope you'll use your extensive uh, previous diplomatic experience, including in very difficult places uh, like Nicaragua, to help uh, make clear and, uh, and have influence over the, Honduran, the new Honduran government as it uh, seeks to, to navigate and, and these challenges, and, and, and in particular that we emphasize how important it is that that recognition of Taiwan not be switched. Uh, when it comes to Jamaica, it's the largest English-speaking nation uh, in the Caribbean. Uh, it has very strong cultural, historical, economic ties to this country, and particularly to South Florida. We have a very robust Jamaican-American and Jamaican expat community that has, does business in our state but remains citizens of Jamaica. And um, they are uh, undergoing a pretty ambitious reform program under Prime Minister Holness, and their public debt fell below 100% in GDP for the first time. Very impressive. They're, the United States is their largest trading partner, and, and that does include uh, companies that now provide products that form the very basis of exactly the kind of sustainable and secure supply chains we need more of. So they have a very strong economic relationship with the United States, with my home state, but they are suffering the consequences of, of the illegal drug crisis uh, that we're facing in this country. Its location geographically makes it uh, ripe for drug trafficking, and they've been a very strong partner. Jamaica's been a very strong partner in countering uh, these drug trafficking networks, and obviously we should continue to do more to bolster their capabilities to do that. So if confirmed, Assemblyman Perry, I hope you'll build on your experience, not just in the in the legislature, but, um, but also your deep ties to Jamaica to help foster and continue to build on that U.S.-Jamaica partnership. When it comes to Portugal, it's a, obviously a NATO ally and actually one that's really done quite a bit. They, they contributed significantly towards the operations in Afghanistan, the Baltic Air Policing Mission, uh, Rapid Reaction Naval Strike Force. Um, and so if you're confirmed, Levine, you'll oversee in a very important relationship for the United States at a very tense time, obviously, uh, when it comes to NATO and recent and ongoing events in Ukraine. And finally, uh, Dr. Lipstadt the, is the nominee to, the US, to be the U.S. Special Envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism. I believe you'll be the first person nominated to this position since my uh, Special Envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism act became law in January of 2021, which made this position subject to Senate confirmation. And my intent when I authored that law was to ensure that the Special Envoy would be a nonpartisan figure to develop and implement the department's policies to address the, the uh, evil poison, the ancient and evil poison of anti-Semitism uh, around the world. And so you clearly bring considerable experience and, and breadth and scope of experience in, in, on Holocaust matters, on history, on, on authored numerous books and countless articles on the topic 
both on the Holocaust and, and anti-Semitism. I'm really eager to learn how, if you're confirmed, um, you intend to uh, continue uh, the, the, our tradition of nonpartisan approach to America's anti-Semitism policy, because I truly believe it's one that is shared by the overwhelming majority of people in American politics, in American government, and, and in America. And uh, I'd like to note, if I can, Mr. Chairman, my colleague, Senator Langford, provided a statement regarding this nomination, and I ask that it be included in the record. Without objection. And with that, I, I want to thank all of you for being here today and for your willingness to serve your country. Thank you. Senator Risch, the well, ranking member of the full committee. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. I want to thank Senator Rubio for agreeing to uh, uh, preside as ranking member on this because of the important matters uh, regarding the Western Hemisphere and uh, his uh, uh, being a ranking member on the subcommittee thereof and his uh, deep knowledge of this. Uh, in addition to that, of course, we... Uh, uh, we do have the other nominations here in Portugal, which is very important, as uh, both uh, of you have pointed out. And then uh, Ms. Lipstadt, uh, whose nomination I think is very important. Senator Rubio pointed out uh, his bill that uh, provided for this is, uh, is warmly received by this committee. Uh, this committee is uh, strongly committed to anti-Semitism. Uh, each and every member thereof. I'm not aware of anyone who has any weakness whatsoever on this issue. I know there was some grumbling about uh, uh, how quickly Ms. Lipstadt's uh, uh, nomination moved forward. Uh, this probably is a learning moment for people who want to be uh, uh, who want to be appointed to some something that requires Senate nomination, and that is that whenever an appointee has made remarks publicly regarding a member, particularly of a Senate committee that's uh, under jurisdiction, it always draws and should draw uh, more uh, scrutiny and more vetting than usual in as much as our, our job of, of advice and consent is very important. I think this is going to become abundantly clear in a few moments when Senator Johnson uh, has a few words to say on this particular subject. Again, thank you, and thank you, Senator Rubio. Uh, be nice if you would uh, return the favor occasionally and let me be ranking on on the Intelligence Committee, particularly if we hold a, a hearing on, on uh, unidentified flying objects, which, as you know, I'm deeply committed to that issue. So thank you very much. Now he's gone too far, but in his request. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Senator Risch. We'll turn to our nominees for uh, their statements. We ask you to summarize them in about five minutes or so. So the committee can engage in a conversation with you. Your full statements will be included in the record without objection. And we'll start with Dr. Lipstadt and just go down the roster. Thank you. Chairman, Chairman Menendez, ranking member and distinguished members of the committee. Thank you, senators. Being here is one of the great honors and great surprises of my life. I am nominated for a rather unusual ambassadorship. So with your permission, I begin with something rather unusual, a Hebrew blessing. Baruch atah Adonai, matir asurim. Blessed are you, God, who frees the captives. This blessing was recited by Jews worldwide when we heard of the escape from the Colleyville Synagogue of the resourceful and brave captives. Many of us, fearing the worst, sat suspended over the void with another blessing at the ready. Baruch Dayan Emet, blessed is the merciful judge. The blessing Jews traditionally recite upon hearing of a death, 
particularly an untimely tragic one. Senators, this was no isolated incident. Increasingly, Jews have been singled out for slander, violence, and terrorism. Today's rise in anti-Semitism is staggering. We witness a surge less than eight decades after one out of every three Jews on earth was murdered. Often in their long history, Jews have felt abandoned, but then is not now, certainly not in the United States. Today, the American government recognizes Jew hatred as a serious global challenge. I sit here because of the United States in a bipartisan, United States Senate in a bipartisan effort takes this problem seriously enough to create fund and now elevate this position to an ambassadorship. Senators, I have taught about anti-Semitism for 40 years. I've written seven books and countless articles. I've designed museum exhibits, including at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. I've lectured at universities from Germany to the Vatican's Pontifical Institute. But I haven't stayed in the Academy's ivory tower. I have confronted real-world anti-Semitism. I cite three life-changing moments. In 1972, as a young graduate student, I visited the Soviet Union to meet refuseniks, the Soviet Jews whose applications to leave the USSR were rejected by Moscow. They lost their jobs, their families were harassed, their children bullied. I anticipated finding people cowering in fear. I did not. Senators, those Soviet Jews were the bravest, most resolute people I've met. They spoke truth to tyranny and were profoundly liberated by so doing. I went to strengthen their Jewish identity and their fight for freedom. I left strengthened by them and acutely aware of democracy's precious gift. A, a second episode. In 1996, I was sued for libel for describing the world's leading Holocaust denier as a fraud, racist, and anti-Semite. He sued me in the UK, hoping to exploit Britain's more lenient libel laws. The grueling six-year legal battle resulted in a resounding verdict in my favor and against anti-Semitism. Yet for the 10 weeks of the trial, I listened in a London courtroom to a Hitler apologist spew Holocaust denial, anti-Semitism, and racism. And finally, a more recent episode, in 2021, I was an expert witness at the Charlottesville civil suit against the organizers of the vile August 2017 demonstration. For those extremists who came to Charlottesville ready to do battle, neo-Nazism, racism, and anti-Semitism are intimately intertwined. Senators, as these episodes suggest, Jew hatred can be found across the entire political spectrum. One finds it among Christians, Muslims, atheists, and sadly, even a handful of Jews. One finds it in Europe, the Middle East, Latin America, and even in countries with no Jews. I am an equal opportunity foe of anti-Semitism. Unless one is willing to fight Jew hatred wherever one finds it, one sh should not be a nominee for this position. My parents were immigrants to this exceptional republic, and they embedded in their children a love for country, a rock-solid Jewish identity, and the belief that we could achieve great things but they certainly never imagined that one of their children could be nominated for an ambassadorship, one that speaks of our republic's determination to confront a hatred that defies our founding ideals. Senators, I am blessed with a job at a university, a job I love at a university I revere with inspiring students. This role, this role if I am honored by confirmation, will be difficult and demanding. 
When first asked to apply for it, I told a friend I would not. But she said, you could make a difference. Senators, if confirmed, I shall fight anti-Semitism worldwide without fear or favor and with that one goal emblazoned before me to make a difference. Finally, if confirmed, I pledge to make myself available to this committee, its members and staff, to seek advice and guidance wherever appropriate. Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member, thank you for your time and your consideration. Thank you for this great honor. I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Dr. Lipstadt, for a very powerful statement. Ambassador Dogu. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Rubio, distinguished members of the committee, it's an honor to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to be the U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Honduras. If confirmed, I look forward to working with you to advance our nation's interests alongside Honduras's first woman president in its 200-year history. During a public service career that has taken me around the world, including to Nicaragua as the U.S. Ambassador, I've leaned on my family for support. My late husband and I raised two sons who are both serving our nation, one with two combat tours in Afghanistan with the 75th Ranger Regiment, and the other on the front lines of our nation's defense with the 82nd Airborne Division. Unfortunately, their military duties did not allow them to be here today, but I'm very proud of their service to our nation, and I know they're supporting me remotely. The United States has a strong and multifaceted partnership with Honduras. As Assistant Secretary Nichols testified, too many ordinary citizens in the region's democracies saw their governments failing to meet their expectations and aspirations for a better future. Corruption remained rampant. Economies grew, but so did inequality. Crime and insecurity took too many lives and stymied the region's development. But the citizens of Honduras confronted these challenges and demonstrated their belief in democracy by voting in historic numbers on November 28th. If confirmed, I will work with the U.S. Congress and interagency, the Honduran government and people, international partners, civil society, and the private sector to promote a democratic Honduras. A Honduras with transparent institutions that fight corruption, narcotics trafficking, and organized crime to enhance security and address the root causes of migration, including through promoting human rights. I will work with these same diverse partners to reactivate the economy, enhance climate resilience, and respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. The U.S. government supports the new president's plans to reduce corruption, including through internationally supported mechanisms. Through DOD, DEA, and state's INL programs, the embassy works to improve Honduras's ability to interdict drugs and disrupt drug trafficking and other transnational criminal networks. The new administration's focus on citizen security presents an opportunity to cooperate with the highest levels of government in Honduras on this issue. Honduras also works with the United States, including the Department of Homeland Security, to address irregular migration. Its efforts have included expanded document checks and checkpoints, strengthened reintegration services for minors and families to deter recidivism, and acceptance of direct flights of migrants expelled from the United States under Title 42. Hondurans remain among the largest group of Central Americans apprehended at the U.S. border, partially due to a lack of economic opportunity at home. 
One of the poorest countries in the hemisphere based on per capita GDP, Honduras struggles to attract investment. A low-skilled labor force, endemic corruption, and unpredictable regulations and judiciary complicate Honduras's efforts to become an investment destination. In addition to a 9% GDP contraction during the pandemic, two hurricanes hit the Sula Valley in November 2020, destroying agricultural and manufacturing centers. Our colleagues at U.S. Southern Command, Sotokano Air Base, and USAID responded to address immediate survival needs. But food insecurity reached crisis levels in Honduras, prompting the embassy to declare emergencies in 2021 and 2022. These hurricanes and an ongoing drought highlight the need for climate-resilient infrastructure and industries. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers conducted studies to help with recovery in the Sula Valley. If confirmed, I look forward to advancing a U.S. government-wide approach to help Honduras during its reconstruction and economic recovery. Honduras faces many challenges on human rights and gender-based violence, issues that appear in the pillars of the U.S. strategy to address the root causes of migration, and we've committed to helping Hondurans address these issues. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, the two countries held a high-level human rights working group, which I look forward to resuming within the context of the new bilateral strategic dialogue that will launch in April. We promote Taiwan as a valuable partner, and I will make clear the importance of a Honduras-Taiwan relationship and do all I can to enhance Honduras's partnerships with other democracies. In conclusion, if confirmed, I look forward to leading our team of professionals at the U.S. Embassy in Tegucigalpa. My highest priorities will be to protect U.S. citizens and champion the interests of the United States in cooperation with our partners in Honduras. Thank you very much for the opportunity to appear here today before you. If confirmed, I look forward to working very closely with this committee, and I'm happy to answer your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ambassador. Ms. Levine. Thank you, Chairman, Ranking Member, and distinguished members of the committee. Thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to be the United States Ambassador to the Portuguese Republic. I am deeply honored to be considered for this position, and I am grateful to President Biden and Secretary Blinken for the confidence that they have placed in me. I pledge to do my very best to represent our great country and to lead the U.S. mission to one of our most reliable European partners. Thanks to Senator Schumer for his gracious introduction. I remember getting a call from him in the car on the way to our son's bar mitzvah, he's 37 today, and he said, Ben, you're a lucky boy. Your parents have worked hard to get you here, so make them proud. And indeed, our children have made us so proud. Ben and his wife, Zoe, our daughter, Jessica, and her husband, Evan, our daughter, Dara, and her husband, Jonathan, and our most precious treasures watching today, our grandchildren, Eli and Orly. Hi, O. My husband, Jeff, is with me here today. He has been my partner and my rock for more than 40 years. We are proof that the American dream is alive and well. Jeff's parents and Irene and Irving, a cab driver, raised their four children in public housing in Brooklyn. My mother, Wendy, was an elementary school teacher, and my father, Eddie Charno, owned a pharmacy in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, down the block from where his father, Joe, 
lived and worked when he emigrated here from Poland in the 1900s. The Charno family has always believed in the importance of serving the community, and a street in Brooklyn was renamed Charno Way to commemorate this history. My nomination as ambassador follows our family's long-standing commitment to service and would bring them so much pride and joy. My road to public service was paved by the arts. I'm a passionate arts advocate and supporter of using cultural exchanges to advance diplomacy. If confirmed, I will draw upon my extensive work at Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery and the Meridian Center for Cultural Diplomacy to build partnerships that will advance American interests and enrich our bilateral relationship. Portugal has been a strong U.S. partner for more than 200 years and was among the first countries to recognize U.S. independence. It is home to the longest continuously operating U.S. consulate at the Azores. Our partnership is built on shared values, a commitment to human rights, to democracy, and to the rule of law. As a founding member of NATO, Portugal is an essential player in the strengthening our transatlantic relationships and defending against malign influences in the region. Portugal is also a notable partner in global defense. It deploys thousands of troops overseas each year to NATO, the EU, the UN, and international peacekeeping efforts, including the Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS. Portugal hosts, proudly, the U.S. Air Force's 65th Air Base Group at Lajes Field in the Azores, an important outpost for transatlantic peace and security. And Portugal's collaboration with the Lusophone African countries offers the Transatlantic Alliance the opportunity to enhance regional security and promote prosperity in the South Atlantic. If confirmed, Senators, I will have three priorities. My top priority will always be the safety and security of Americans in Portugal, including the outstanding personnel and family members of Embassy Lisbon and our consulate at the Azores. I will also work to enhance bilateral and regional security efforts. Second, I will work to deepen our bilateral economic ties. Bilateral trade in goods between our two countries reached $4.6 billion in 2020. The United States is part Portugal's largest trading partner outside of the EU. Portuguese investment in the United States is significant, particularly in tech and in renewable energy projects. Third, I will collaborate with the Portuguese to address shared existential challenges, including fighting climate change and combating COVID-19. I will also work closely with Portugal to address any significant challenges that the People's Republic of China poses to our national security and to align efforts to deter Russia's destabilizing activities. If confirmed, I look forward to working with you, this committee, to strengthen our partnership with Portugal and to advance U.S. interests. Thank you for allowing me to testify, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Mr. Perry. Thank you. Sorry. Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, ranking member, and distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify before you today. 
I'm honored to appear before you as President Biden's nominee to serve as the United States Ambassador to Jamaica. I would like to take this opportunity to thank Senate Majority Leader Schumer for his recommendation to the President, for his steadfast support, and for taking some time to introduce me today. I also express my appreciation for the encouragement I have received from others in New York's congressional delegation. I'm grateful to appear before you today, accompanied by my wife, Joyce, and my son, Nicholas Alexander. My daughter, Novali, and granddaughter, Justin, are not here, but I am assured of their full support. This continuation of my lifelong journey of public service is deeply personal to me. I was born and raised in Jamaica in a family of 11 children. After attending and graduating from secondary school, I worked for the Bustamante Industrial Trade Union briefly before moving to the United States in the summer of 1971. My career in public service began soon after my arrival. I volunteered for the Selective Service, was drafted into the United States Army, and served for two years of active duty, including a year-long deployment to South Korea and four years on reserve status before being honorably discharged. I attended Brooklyn College on the GI Bill, graduating with a BA in political science, and later studied for a MA in public policy and administration. After college, I got involved with community organizing, was appointed to the local community board, and eventually was elected to five consecutive terms as chairman of that board. As community board chair, I concurrently served five consecutive terms on the Brooklyn Bar Board before being elected to the New York State Assembly in 1992. I have since served for nearly 30 years and is currently the Assistant Speaker pro tempore. I have dedicated my career in public service, working across diverse communities to build consensus on issues of social importance. If confirmed, I believe my experience and perspective as a state legislator for almost 30 years complemented by my background as an American who was born and raised in Jamaica for the first 20 years of my life, could contribute positively to strengthening the United States' partnership with Jamaica. As the safety and security of Americans abroad is the State Department's top priority, if confirmed, I pledge to fulfill my responsibilities to safeguard the welfare of all U.S. citizens, including supporting the security of U.S. citizens living in or traveling to Jamaica. I pledge to also coordinate closely with U.S. law enforcement agencies and Jamaican counterparts to address the threats posed by transnational criminal organizations, drug trafficking, and human trafficking, including through the Caribbean Basin Security Initiative. The United States is leading the world in the fight against COVID-19 by donating more vaccines than any other nation combined. Recognizing the severe impact of the pandemic on Jamaica, if confirmed, I will ensure we continue U.S. backing to address Jamaica's COVID-19 public health-related challenges and to help Jamaica recover from the economic impacts of the pandemic. As the world looks to create an equitable clean energy future and millions of good-paying jobs, if confirmed, I will also work to support innovative U.S. engagement with Jamaica in promoting renewable energy sources, 
to help stabilize electricity cost, promote a reliable, resilient, and low-carbon power grid to assist the country's development. Finally, if confirmed, I pledge to make myself available to this committee, its members, and staff to seek your advice and guidance where appropriate. Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member, thank you for your time and consideration. I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you all very much for your statements. Um, before I start a round of five-minute questions, I have questions uh, that we ask on behalf of the committee as a whole, uh, and it goes to each nominee, and I would just simply ask you uh, for a yes or no response. Uh, these are questions that speak to the importance that this committee places on responsiveness by all officials in the executive branch and that we expect and will be seeking from you. So uh, do you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited? Yes. Yes. Yes, Mr. Chairman. Yes. Okay. Do you commit to keep this committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview? Yes. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes, Mr. Chairman. Do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation while policies are being developed, not just providing notification after the fact? Yes, Mr. Chairman. Yes. Yes, Mr. Chairman. And finally, do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefings and information requested by the committee and its designated staff? Yes. 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 Yes, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. All of the nominees have responded yes to all the questions and shall be recorded. The chair will reserve his time and turn to uh, Senator Rubio for his questions. Let, let's, um, let's begin uh, with the... Uh, the Envoy to Monitor and Combat Anti-Semitism. Um, let, let's just, as I think Senator Lankford pointed out in, in his letter, um, this is a position that you know, we want to make sure is one that's represented as a nonpartisan one, that the world knows that America is united on this. So it gives us the strength of our voice around the world. Obviously, and I want to give you a chance to address it. As you know, you've answered questions and have in the past addressed a series of uh, social media posts and the like that uh, referenced uh, members of the Republican Party, members of the Senate, and the like. And clearly, as an American, you have absolute right. We don't believe in canceling anybody. People have a right to speak out and, and express their views. But I think you would understand how someone seeing that would then be concerned that a position that is supposed to be nonpartisan, um, how could that be so if someone has expressed these views in, in recent history? So I wanted to give you an opportunity uh, to sort of address to someone who's concerned about um, your ability to uh, operate in a nonpartisan way, how do we reconcile that with, uh, with uh, your very strong opinions that you've expressed in the past about both individuals in the Senate and also uh, the Republican Party, frankly? Thank you for the question, Senator Rubio, and thank you for the chance to address that issue. Um, as I said in my opening statement, I am an equal opportunity critic of anyone who says something or people, it doesn't matter what end or even in the middle of the political spectrum they may place themselves. I firmly believe that those people who only see anti-Semitism or any form of prejudice, but certainly anti-Semitism 
on the other side of the political transom are not really interested in fighting anti-Semitism. They're weaponizing into anti-Semitism, and uh, there is no excuse for that at all. Um, I have been critical, and I acknowledge it. I've also learned not to tweet in the middle of the night. Very bad uh, thing to do. Um, and I have sometimes not been as nuanced in my tweets as I like. But I think if you uh, look at my criticism holistically, you will see that I have been exceptionally careful, uh, uh, critical of members of uh, the Democratic Party, of people on the end of the spectrum, political spectrum, where I place myself. Um, I have written about Antifa, for instance, as a violent, anti-democratic, self-serving, and dangerous entity. I have criticized specific members when I feel that they have uh, said something that uh, can be construed or is anti-Semitic. Finally, the uh, last two points, a person's political persuasions are irrelevant in the fight against anti-Semitism. And the last point I want to make is when I am critical, I am not critical of the person themselves, particularly if I don't know the person, I've had no contact with the person, um, but of what they said, and how that might be interpreted. I wanted to ask you about Amnesty International. Uh, their recent report, I'm sure you're very familiar with it at this point, um, I think it falsely, well, it does, it falsely frames Israel as a singular evil among the nations of the world. Does that kind of language from an organization like that, it, could that be something that helps to justify and, and foster anti-Semitic attacks against Jews across the globe? I found uh, the language used in that report, I don't want to talk about the details of the report, but that kind of language, I found it more than ahistorical. I found it unhistorical. Uh, branding Israel an apartheid state is more than historically inaccurate. I believe it's part of a larger effort to delegitimize the Jewish state. Uh, such language, I see it spilling over onto campuses where it poisons the atmosphere, particularly for Jewish students. Um, you have to ask why people are using that kind of language. What are they trying to accomplish? Um, and I know that the Biden and Harris administration has taken a very strong position on this. In fact, last month, the State Department spokesman cited the department's vehement disagreement with uh, that language. And probably our ambassador to Israel, Tom Nides, said it best, albeit in a tweet, he said, come on, this is absurd, and I second that. Um, I guess I'll reserve my questions on Honduras if we go to a second round. Well, I just wanted to ask on, on the topic of Honduras, and obviously these countries are people, they choose their leaders and they have a right to elect them, but there is reason to be concerned, is there not, um, with both um, you know, the statements recently made about this desire to potentially uh, engage, uh, abandon diplomatic recognition of Taiwan and, and, and switch it to Beijing. Uh, would, I just want an assurance that that would be a priority for us, uh, for, for you, if, if confirmed to this post, that, that it would be, and it reflects the, uh, I believe, the official position of the United States, that it would be very forceful in making that a priority and in laying out the arguments for why we think that would be a bad idea. Your microphone, I'm sorry. Senator Rubio, um, the, since the elections, there have been many high-level visits from Washington down to Honduras, and I know that everybody that has made that visit and spoken with the new government down there has stressed the importance of that relationship with Taiwan. And as you heard me say in my opening statement, I, too, if confirmed, will uphold that strong position. I do believe it's very important 
for the government of Honduras to continue their relationship with the government of Taiwan. I think it can be uh, beneficial. To, obviously, it has been in the past, and I think it will continue to be so. I think there are opportunities to work together, especially in the economic space. Obviously, the government of Taiwan has succeeded in developing a strong economy in their own country, and I think there are lessons that can be learned and shared and investments that can be made and should be made in Honduras. I, so I do commit to you that I would continue to take that position and to work strongly to maintain that relationship with Taiwan if I am confirmed. Senator Cardin. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you for convening this hearing. I want to congratulate all four of our nominees and thank them for their willingness to serve our country and also thank their families uh, for recognizing that this is going to be a, a family commitment um, for, this, uh, for the service that you all have been nominated for. Ms. Lipstadt, I want to concur with Senator Rosen and Senator Schumer, and thank you for your extraordinary service to date in fighting anti-Semitism. You're extremely well qualified, and you're the right person at this moment when we see a rise globally of anti-Semitism, including here in the United States. For over two decades, the U.S. Helsinki Commission, which I now have the honor to chair, has been raising the concerns about the rise of anti-Semitism. It was the work of the Helsinki Commission that led to the Berlin Conference that took place in 2005, in which we gathered together to plan a strategy to fight the rise of anti-Semitism. And there was a good action plan that came out of the Berlin Conference. The responsibility of leaders to speak out about any form of anti-Semitism that occurs in their, under their watch, sharing best practices, law enforcement training, sharing data information, particularly on hate crimes. There were recommendations that came out of the Berlin Conference in 2004, and despite those recommendations, we now see a, a rise of anti-Semitism. I, I am the Special Representative for Anti-Semitism, Racism, and Intolerance in the OSCE Parliamentary Assembly, and during the 2019 Parliamentary Assembly in Luxembourg, we convened a, uh, a separate section to deal with anti-Semitism, and it was very well attended. One of the recommendations that came out of that particular conference was the fact that we should not be tunnel vision in our strategies, that we need to form coalitions, because hate knows no religious or ethnic bound. Those that are going to be committing these types of hate crimes will target any marginal group. So my question to you is, what new strategies can you bring, recognizing the challenges have been here for some time? In recent, in recent time, it has grown rather dramatically. We all know that. When I used to visit Europe a couple, uh, 10, 15 years ago, I was surprised to see the level of security at Jewish institutions. Now I see that level, level plus here in the United States in Jewish institutions. All we have to do is take a look at the assessments we're getting for security in our synagogues. So my question to you is, how do you see your role to recognize that we have met before, we've had strategies before, these strategies have been effective to a limited degree, and how do we form coalitions so that we recognize that anti-Semitism is based in hate, which also affects other 
groups of individuals. Uh, thank you, Senator. Thank you for your kind words. Uh, I, too, have commented often on the fact that uh, used to be when we went to Europe, you could identify the synagogue by the gendarmes, and now that's the case in the United States. And I'm particularly honored that one of my guests today is Anne, Anna Eisen Salton, the founding president of Congregation Beth Israel in Collegeville, Texas, the child of two survivors, and who watched with her 100-year-old mother uh, on Facebook the recent assault uh, on that synagogue. I also am uh, very pleased to be accompanied by uh, Diane DaCosta, a graduate uh, alum of the University of Virginia, who hid in her room as the marchers passed by that night uh, in Charlottesville and then escaped in the dead of night and said it reminded her of her grandmother escaping from Poland. So all those things we relegated to history, all those things we relegated to Europe are now here uh, as well, even though my position, of course, is global anti-Semitism. To your question, in terms of what I would do, my goals, um, I think on some level the same, more of what has been done, more of the um, basis, the foundation that you and your colleagues and your fellow senators have laid over the years. Uh, but I am an educator. And um, I know when I go into a room with other uh, with representatives, whether it's of organizations, whether it's NGOs or it's government representatives, I want to make them understand, first of all, the pernicious nature of anti-Semitism. And one would think that after the Holocaust and after everything that's gone on, you wouldn't have to do that, that that would be bringing coals to Newcastle. But sadly, it's the fact. Many people who take other hatreds very seriously will sometimes as a sop, say, and anti-Semitism. Whereas I say, uh, the Jew is often the canary in the coal mine. Uh, no democracy has ever been a healthy democracy if it abided anti-Semitism. So I look forward to partnerships, to educating, to stressing that though Jews may not present as other victims, uh, anti-Semitism is a prejudice like other prejudices with its distinct characteristic. It's got to be addressed, and it's got to be addressed wherever you find it. I don't care if I agree with you on everything else you say. If you're engaging in anti-Semitism, I'm going to call you out, and I'm going to address it. Um, it. It can't be a political weapon. I thank you for that, Mr. Chairman. Let me just point out the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum gives you a real tool in your toolkit to fight anti-Semitism, but it's interesting that that organization is very much engaged in all forms of hatred against racial minorities and religious minorities because there is that common theme and working in coalition we can present a stronger package to fight anti-Semitism. So thank you again for your willingness. Thank sir. you, Senator. Thank you. Senator Risch. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I'm going to yield Senator Johnson. Senator he has Johnson. another appointment. Hey, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ms. Lipstadt, I attended the inaugural address of President Biden. I completely agreed with his goal that he laid out, his number one goal, to unify and heal this nation. I'd assume you'd agree with that as well? Absolutely. Uh, a year later, do you think our nation's more unified? Are we healing? I think not. Okay. I think they're deep division. I, I, so I, I agree with you on that. I think one way to try and heal our nation, try and unify it, is person to person. Uh, are you familiar with uh, something called the Joseph Project in Milwaukee, Wisconsin? No, I'm not. It's a, I'll 
take just brief time to describe it. It's something I teamed up with a pastor in inner city church, Pastor Jerome Smith, a wonderful man. Uh, his congregation is obviously largely African-American, but we've used this to connect people with real opportunity. Uh, and, you know, people of all races, all genders, people, some of them formerly incarcerated, some, you know, just down in their life, uh, alcohol, drug abusers, that type of thing. Uh, people want to turn their lives around by improving their attitude, committing to success. And we've literally transformed hundreds of lives. I, I wish it was thousands. I wish it was tens of thousands, but literally hundreds of lives. So does that sound like a pretty good way to heal this nation, working with individuals on a person-to-person basis? Absolutely. You can make broad uh, policy pronouncements, but unless you changed facts on the ground, nothing's going to change. Yeah, I, I agree. I've, I think it's been very healing, uh, certainly for those individuals that participate in it. You know, a way not to heal, I think, is what's happening on social media. Uh, I was interesting, uh, it was interesting to hear uh, Senator Schumer talk about the malicious poison. And what's happening on social media so often is just, it's just malicious. And, it's, and it comes, as, as I think you said in your opening statement, from across the political spectrum. We need to all condemn it. Let me ask you a question. If somebody came up to you privately, quietly, and said, uh, you're a racist, you're a white supremacist, you're a white nationalist. By the way, I, I do not believe you are. I, I, would, I would never assume that because... You know, certainly growing up, when I was being taught uh, the commandment that says, do not bear false witness, my Lutheran catechism says, uh, always put the best construction on things. In other words, always assume the best about people, not the worst. So now, how would you feel somebody just privately called you racist? First of all, I would say they're wrong. Second of all, I would uh, disagree with them. And I, as I said earlier, but I want to reiterate that even in my critiques of people, um, I'm very careful um, never to ascribe to the person. Well, I thought, you know, I, I heard that. I thought that was interesting. So you never criticize the person. Um, but that's not true. What, you're just, what, you, what you just testified there is false. Because not only did you go on, not only did you, first of all, you don't know me. You don't know a lot of the people that you have accused online in front of millions of people. You, 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 have, you have engaged in the malicious poison. You've accused people you don't know of very vile things. I mean, wouldn't you agree that probably calling somebody a racist is just shot, just under murderer and rapist? Calling somebody a racist? Is that about a, a serious and vile accusation as you can hurl over some, against somebody? Somebody you don't even know? I mean, you've never talked to me. You've never met me. You don't know what's in my heart, do you? No, I have no idea. What, no, I do not know what's in your heart at all. I know what... So, so why, why would you go on social media and, 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 and make those charges? And not only me, and by the way, what Senator Rubio said, this, this position is supposed to be for a nonpartisan. It seems like the, how you engage in malicious poison is purely partisan. You're, you're hurling these charges against people that are generally one political persuasion. That's not nonpartisan. But again, why did, you, why did you go on social media and level these vile and horrible charges against people, including me, that you don't even know? You, you didn't know anything about the Joseph Project. You didn't know about my, what's in my heart. Why did you do it? 
Well, first of all, I don't think, I, as far as I can tell, and I'm, I'm happy to, to have this conversation further or right here, uh, call you personally, or I don't call people personally. No, it's, I mean, we all, we all know the tweet. It's right here. Right, right. Okay. You said it's pure and simple, pure and simple. This white supremacy, white nationalism. And then you, you refer to, you know, articles right. that, that continue the charge. Uh, do, 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 you, do you feel bad about that at all? I mean, I, I, do, do you retract I that? I mean, do you, what, you, I mean, what's your current position on this? Can, can we uh, allow the witness to answer your questions? Um, I, as I said earlier, um, it was not nuanced. Uh, I would not do diplomacy by tweet. Um, while I may disagree with your what you said specifically, and I think that's a legitimate uh, difference, um, I certainly did not mean it, and I'm sorry if it was taken, and I'm sorry if I made it in a way uh, that it could be assumed to be a, uh, a political uh, well, at, at the person personally. Well, listen, I appreciate your, your apology, and I'll accept your apology. It's, it's, it's more than, for example, what the chairman of this committee has done and other members who've also you know, callously and cavalierly hurled those same charges that I would consider our malicious poison to our, our body politic today. But again, appreciate, appreciate the apology, but I think somebody that has had a 30-year professional career ought to know better. And when you're being nominated and considered for confirmation to a position of diplomacy representing the United States, I, can't, I certainly cannot support your nomination. I hope my other colleagues won't either. You're just simply not qualified for it. But I, I wish you the best in life, and I do accept your apology. Uh, Senator uh, Van Hollen is next. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Congratulations uh, to all of you on your, your nominations. Um, Dr. Lipstadt, I did want to follow up on uh, what Senator Rosen mentioned, Senator Cardin, I think the chairman, uh, about what we all recognizes an alarming increase, uh, rise in anti-Semitism, uh, both here at home and around the world. Just recently, here in the Washington, D.C. area, uh, we've seen swastikas drawn on the walls in Union Station uh, and pamphlets spreading COVID-19 misinformation and anti-Semitic hatred in Silver Spring, Maryland. Uh, Worldwide, uh, we've seen a new phenomena of public figures comparing COVID-19 public health restrictions to the horrors of the Holocaust. Can you talk about what your priorities would be, what your immediate strategy would be if you were confirmed in this position to begin to address uh, the challenge of anti-Semitism globally? Um, first of all, as I've said before, and I said just now, I, to, to fight it wherever I find it, but also, I think it's necessary uh, to help people, politicians, policymakers, media, whomever, uh, understand what Jew hatred is. We've seen in this country in recent weeks this well-known people, prominent people, mangle an understanding of what is Jew hatred. Um, and I think that's exceptionally important. I also think it's important, sometimes working with our partners, bilaterally, uh, countries who are our partners on so many things that sometimes what they might engage in uh, would be a form of, might have anti-Semitic implications without their even 
uh, realizing it. Um, I am, uh, I look, I have a broad-based agenda to work with other people and also to work with different elements in the State Department, whether it's the Ambassador for Religious Freedom, whether it's the Special Envoy on uh, Holocaust issues, uh, the, 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 whether it's the um, people on the various regional desks, uh, there is a great deal of expertise there. Um, I think it's something that has to be stressed. This is not a joke, and this is not a small group making a lot of noise, and this is not um, uh, you know, special pleading. This is a serious issue. It's a serious issue even in and of itself, but it's also, as I said earlier, the canary in the coal mine. If you value democracy, you've got to hate anti-Semitism. And I uh, want to underscore the point that you made uh, with regard to the seriousness of it. Um, as we've seen this alarming rise in anti-Semitism, we've also witnessed some who seek to politicize um, anti-Semitism by equating legitimate criticism of Israeli government policies uh, with anti-Semitism. Uh, you have said that it is, quote, dangerous because it diminishes real anti-Semitism. Can you elaborate on the important distinction that you were drawing there? Absolutely. Um, criticism of Israeli policy is not anti-Semitism. If you want to hear criticism of Israeli policies, I suggest you seat yourself down in a cafe in Tel Aviv or in Jerusalem, whatever part of the country, depending who is in the government. It's a national sport in Israel, second only maybe to soccer and maybe more than that. Um, so I don't think any rational-minded person would think that criticism of Israel, uh, Israeli policies is uh, anti-Semitism. I do see, think there's certain things that cross the, the line into anti-Semitism, and criticism can often cross the line. Um, in the IRA definition, um, as it's a working definition. I think it's an exceptionally useful tool as such. It gives examples, and it's a, it illustrates different kinds of things, some of which, a number of which have to do with Israel, and says these may, but not necessarily are anti-Semitic. A lot depends on the context. Um, I think it's very important to, to be nuanced there, because, uh, you know, it's sort of uh, chicken little and the sky is falling. If you call everything anti-Semitism, when you have a real act of anti-Semitism, people aren't paying attention. But when you have a real act of anti-Semitism, irrespective of where it's coming from, you've got to call it out. Uh, thank you, thank you, Dr. Lipstadt. And I, I see my time is running short. I will submit um, questions for the other witnesses for the record. Thank, thank you all. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I understand uh, that the only other person at this point is Senator Shaheen. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and congratulations to each of our nominees, and thank you for your willingness to serve the country. I'm actually going to begin with each of the ambassadorial nominees, so um, Mr. Levine, Mr. Perry, and Ms. Dogu, am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Um, because I have been very concerned about um, anomalous health incidents attacks by our embassy personnel around the world, and uh, also known as Havana Syndrome. And I want, I want to ask each of you if you're familiar with um, that. Um, I don't know whether to, I, I'm not going to call it a disease, though I think um, there are health issues that result. But are you familiar with anomalous health incidents? Yes. 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 
Mr. Perry? Yes, ma'am. Um, I want to ask you to commit, if confirmed, you will go to the ambassadorial seminar session that addresses AHIs and seek a classified briefing with the State Department so that should you have um, those attacks by your embassy personnel that you'll be able to respond appropriately. Can yes, I? Yes, I will. Thank you all very much. Um, I'd like to actually begin with you, Mr. Perry. Um, and you, you certainly know firsthand the importance of the role that, the relationship between the United States and Jamaica. Um, one of the things that has been important in New Hampshire and so many other states have been the Jamaican workers who have come for a short period of time, often on H-2B visas, to work in various industries in New Hampshire. It's usually in the hospitality industry, um, who are very important to our workforce and who then go home. Uh, they're able to send um, funds back to their families in Jamaica, and it's an important aspect of our workforce here and also in supporting families in the country. Now, one of the important aspects of those H-2B visas is the role that the embassies play in ensuring that those interviews are held and that people can come to the United States. So I, I would ask you if you would um, commit to doing everything you can if confirmed as ambassador to ensure that those um, visa applicants are given due consideration and that that process works as smoothly as possible. Thank you for that question, Senator. Uh, I do understand that the pandemic had impact on the uh, efficiency of the services provided at the embassy in Kingston. Uh, I do understand also that that's a very important program, the economic uh, uh, values to Jamaica and uh, to our partnership. And I certainly commit to very strongly uh, emphasizing and ensuring that uh, our embassy takes actions uh, in light of the improvements that we've been able to make with additional staff, I understand, uh, to focus on addressing uh, that particular uh, visa situation because I know it is necessary and that it strengthens our partnership. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. And any way that I or my office can be helpful in that process, we certainly stand ready to do that. Um, Ambassador Dogu, I, you, I was in the Senate um, during the Obama administration when um, we saw a migration from Central America, from, uh, and Honduras was one of those three countries that had a very... Um, tens of thousands of people migrating to come to the United States. We saw a decline in that, I think, as the result of a number of factors. But now we're seeing it increase again. We've seen it increase again. Can you speak to why you think we're seeing that cyclical increase and what policies we should be pursuing to help Hondurans be able to see a brighter future in their own country? Yes, Senator, thank you for that very important question. Obviously, there's been a historical large flow of migration from Honduras, and it's something that the U.S. government has worked over a long period of time to try and address. 
There have been sort of some periods with more investment, some periods with less investment uh, into Honduras. I think it's very important that it be consistent. Clearly, the, the people are leaving the country when you talk to them for very fundamental reasons. They don't feel safe in their own country, and they don't feel like they can find jobs to support their families. So clearly, I think as the U.S. Ambassador, my role would be to support the new government of Honduras's efforts to address these sorts of challenges. This is also a negative, in a sense, for the country. It's a brain drain as their young people you know, flow north to, you know, to the United States. So I think that we need to continue with our programs to focus on security. As I mentioned in my statement, I think it's also very important to focus on helping rebuild the economy. They've really taken a large hit due to the pandemic, and they've taken a large hit due to two very large hurricanes that went through there uh, and unfortunately damaged some very critical parts of their country uh, economically for them. So I think that being consistent and focusing, and now we have a new government, a new partner in Honduras, I think there are opportunities to really expand our efforts there. And I look forward to working with the team that's already on the ground in Honduras to do so, should I be confirmed. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. My time is over. Thank you. Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate the hearing today, and I appreciate just hearing about some improvements in Central America, which is always always good news, given the impact it has on the people of those countries, but also on our current situation with regard to illegal migration. So you're going to have your hands full, and it's really important that we do all we can to deal with the push factors in those countries. My question, Mr. Chairman, is to Dr. Lipstadt, um, you're about to fill a really important position, and with your background, uh, I think you'll you'll fill it well. Um, I've had a number of constituents actually reach out on your behalf who've worked with you, and as the ranking member of the Homeland Security Committee, we've continued to advocate for something I think you uh, are aware of, which is called the Nonprofit Security Grant Program. This is a critical source of funding for houses of worship, other nonprofits. It's been used primarily uh, in the Jewish community uh, as um, synagogues, community centers, schools face increasing threats, anti-Semitism and, and other hate crimes, uh, growing threats of violence. We just saw this recently uh, with regard to the kidnapping in, in Texas. Um, as we continue to help protect targets of anti-Semitic violence, we've got to also combat the root causes, of course. How do you propose we address the root causes anti-Semitism. Um, thank you very much. I'm well aware of that program. I've benefited from it in my own synagogue and other synagogues. I was just talking to uh, Ms. Eisen, who's here from, from Colleysville, Texas, and she was telling me when, that the synagogue needs a lot of repair after what happened. And I said, how do you pay for that? And she says, well, what insurance doesn't pay, the government is, is helping with us with. I don't know if it's through this specific program, but I was glad to hear that. But back to the bigger issue of the root causes. Um, Anti-Semitism has the moniker of being the oldest or the longest hatred. It's been around for a very long time. And though I don't surprise easily, given my field of study, um, it's sometimes surprising that, as I said in my opening statement, but less than eight decades after the, um, after the, the Holocaust that we should be facing anti-Semitism. Many people predicted after the Holocaust that the, that was the end of anti-Semitism, and, 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 and we're surprised, or as the British would say, gobsmacked to the degree which it is not. 
Um, I plan to uh, become a thorn in the side of those who uh, engage in anti-Semitism. Uh, you know, there are those who are violent anti-Semites. We saw that in Texas. We saw that in the streets, as Senator Schumer said earlier, of Williamsburg. Uh, we saw that in Charlottesville. We saw that in Halle, Germany, and so many places throughout Europe. Uh, but they're also the uh, polite anti-Semites, the people who say things, uh, but it's just, I'm just saying it, or don't think about the implications of what they say. I think all those people have to be called out. And then governments have to be told that this is something we take very seriously, and we'll work with you on it. We'll work with you on it. Um, this is not a way of uh, the Senate of the United States making a small group of Jews feel comfortable or feel happy. But this is, we see this as a danger to the founding ideals of this republic. We see this as a, uh, a sign of what could be. And we recognize, and most of all, Senator, um, no genocide, no attack, begins with the attack, whether you're talking about a genocide in Europe, whether you're talking about a genocide in Rwanda, wherever you are, it starts with words. And as uh, some of your colleagues have mentioned, the Holocaust Museum, you just go down the block and you can see how it starts with words. Um, and then it escalates. That doesn't mean it's always going to escalate to a, to a Holocaust, but if you're going to stop something, you stop it when well before it is of that degree. Uh, so I plan to be as energetic as possible in fighting this. I never thought I would be in this position, um, but if I have the honor of being confirmed, uh, it, I want to make a difference in that regard. Great. Well, again, given your background, um, you're well qualified to take on that task, including the international task, and, and we want to work with you on that. Um, the Nonprofit Security Grant Program did provide um, the synagogue in, in Texas with uh, hardening, as I understand, That's including right. cameras, which were very helpful with regard to the hostage taking, but also training. And one thing we have found out is that although these grant programs have been effectively used in some areas of the country, other folks don't know about it. Um, the Sikh community, the Muslim community, the Jewish community, the Christian community, it's, 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 it's available broadly for these, uh, these kinds of threats. So we've introduced new legislation called the Pray Safe Act, which is to provide houses of worship one centralized place where you can find out what the best practices are, find out what, what training's available. Um, uh, this is with uh, Senator uh, uh, Shaheen and Hassan. And uh, my sense is that following the incident in Corey, uh, in uh, Colleyville, Texas, this is more important than ever to let people know, you know what's available to them. Have you looked at that Pray Safe Act? I, ha I have looked at it. I haven't uh, studied it in depth because my remit, of course, if confirmed, will be abroad. But, mm -hmm. you know, the division between domestic and international anti-Semitism is getting murkier. Uh, the terrorist, the kidnapper, uh, the would-be murderer in Colleyville um, was radicalized abroad. And then he came here to do yep. his handiwork. Uh, the divisions we used to draw are not as clear. Clearly, my remit in the State Department is abroad, uh, but you can't, the hard lines, especially with social media, for better or for worse, it's harder to draw those lines. Um, 
My synagogue has benefited from this program. And I have to tell you, speaking personally just for a second, um, I sat in synagogue about, oh, I guess it was before COVID, but about two years ago, where uh, the rabbi and the yep. members of the synagogue who were taking charge of this handed out pieces of paper showing us what door to exit, God forbid there was something, and telling parents, all parents, but especially Jewish parents, don't go for your children. Your children will be brought to safety. I said, a lot of good that's going to do. But go out, how to go out, where to mm -hmm. rendezvous. I have that piece of paper sitting on my desk. Yeah. It's a reminder yeah. that it's come to me in Atlanta, just as it's been coming to so many places in the rest of the world. Paris, Berlin, Halle, uh, Belgium, too many places to name. Yeah. Pittsburgh, Tree of Life. Um, Absolutely, yeah. where the rabbi got training before. Yep. And of course, the people at, at Colleyville, Colleyville talked about the training and yep. how it saved their lives. And, and can save lives. Well, as you mm -hmm. say, this terrorist, and my time has expired, but just one sentence on that, because this committee gets involved in these issues. He came here on a visa from a country where uh, we have a relationship where it's easy to have access to the United States through visa programs. And yet he, the reports are that he had told the UK police and others um, uh, that he wanted to, well, reports are that he had said that he wanted to kill Jews and that this was reported to the UK police last year, these anti-Semitic threats, and yet the visa waiver program was available to him. So we, we've got to tighten up the visa waiver program from countries, even our great allies like, like the UK, to be sure uh, we're not allowing these terrorists in when we have information. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Senator Kane. Exquisite timing, Mr. Yeah, Chair. Impeccable. <laughs> um, I'm very interested in asking questions about Honduras, uh, where, where I lived uh, in 1980 and 81. And I appreciate, um, Madam Ambassador, you being here and you're being uh, poised for that position. I'm sorry that I've been at other hearings and haven't heard questions that you've already been asked. But, um, you know, the, the, the tragedy of Honduras is I lived there when it was a military dictatorship. And things were awful. I knew people who were oppressed by the military. I knew some people who were killed by the military. Um, it's, it's worse now. You, you, you think the move from a dictatorship to a democracy, just like magic, makes things better. I, I don't think that's the case. And I didn't think I'd ever say that, but in, in recent years, um, becoming murder capital of the world the control of narco-traffickers, the deep, deep corruption um, by the past government especially, but they were not unique in that, uh, has, has created situations that are just so grim for Hondurans trying to live everyday life. Um, some of the challenges they face are directly related to our pain. If, if, if the U.S. didn't have such a tremendous hunger for illegal drugs um, and we were willing to send cash south to pull drugs north, many of the communities in Honduras, many of the neighborhoods in Honduras and other countries would be a lot safer and more secure than they are. And so their, their pain is connected to our pain in ways that we have to own and try to be creative in solving. Talk a little bit about the opportunities that the U.S. has with a, a new government in place. Uh, President Castro was inaugurated recently. Um, a somewhat controversial election, but thank goodness an election that compared to previous elections was widely viewed to be fair. It was called relatively quickly. There was a concession. 
I know right around the time of the inauguration, there was sort of a skirmish on the legislative front. We're, we're used to that too, skirmishes between an executive and a legislative branch. But putting the past administration in Honduras in the rearview mirror with its corruption, its abandonment of anti-corruption and anti-transparency initiatives, its, its connection to drug trafficking in, in the United States, what would your intention be should you be confirmed in terms of trying to start a new chapter in the relationship that would be positive for the United States and positive for Honduras? Uh, Senator, thank you very much, not only for those remarks, but for your long-term interest in Honduras and the importance of the U.S.-Honduran relationship. I, I agree with you completely on all of that. I think that we do have a unique opportunity here. I mean, there is a new president. She was inaugurated just recently. She won in a, in a very strong uh, turnout by the population of Honduras. So she really comes into office representing the yearning desire for democracy and anti-corruption programs and freedoms and security by the people of Honduras. And that's really powerful, I think, for an elected leader to arrive in that position. And I know that the United States government, uh, obviously I'm not involved in this yet since I'm pending confirmation, uh, and I'm waiting for the Senate to decide if that's uh, a, a good choice or not. But there have been many senior officials, including recently the vice president, who traveled to Honduras to meet with her. And I think that there are a lot of areas that we have in common that we can work together, things that she wants to do to make things better in Honduras, and things that we've recognized that are good for Honduras and are also good for the United States. Uh, obviously, we need to continue to help them address the security challenges that they have faced. Things are not good, but things have been worse in that regard. Some of those right. violent numbers yeah. have come down in some of the areas that we've invested in. We've seen some significant improvements there. Clearly, they face strong economic challenges. There have been hurricanes that have destroyed the, the um, key parts of the country, in addition to just the normal pandemic challenges, and then historical challenges. So it's very important to work with them to do things like uh, opening up their regulations to make it a better place for outside investors to come in. Uh, previously, Senator Rubio was talking about the possibility of nearshoring production. I right. think there's tremendous opportunity in all of that, but it really is going to be up to both the president and her new team and the new Congress to be able to get themselves organized and working together as a team to pass the legislation that's going to be needed to stabilize and open up the markets there. And then the judiciary is going to play a key part because if businesses don't feel confident in the fact that they can invest and that there's rule of law, they're still going to be reluctant to do that even with the best of regulations. So I have a, a broad agenda in front of me. If I'm lucky enough to be confirmed, I look forward to confronting those challenges. The team on the ground down there has been doing a great job already, and I would just be a new part of, of this very strong team. Thank you, Ambassador. One final point, Mr. Chair, quickly. I, I would hope... As you, as you work together with, with our vice president's office, office and others in the administration at this root causes analysis and you look at economic opportunities, I sometimes think when we approach a problem like that, we, we look at who, what company can we get to make a commitment to invest in Honduras. Um, and that's, that's hard to get a commitment from a company that's not already there. I would really focus on the American companies that are already there. There's a quarter of a million um, textile workers in the Northern Triangle who work for American companies, uh, usually using U.S. cotton to then make clothing. There's, there's retail, American retail companies. I'd really listen to those who are already there and ask, what could we do that would make you hire more people, that would make you expand? Uh, I think that that's usually a higher likely play than trying to get somebody new to come in who's never been there and doesn't really know the culture and the people. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Senator Kane.
uh, chair will recognize himself. Uh, you know, I, I would have uh, left this untouched, but the record cannot stand as it is. Uh, Senator Johnson uh, called out the chair saying that I have not apologized for the speech I made on the Senate floor, and I will not apologize for the speech I made on the Senate floor. If we cannot call out comments for what they are, if we don't understand that words have power to them, sometimes very negative, powerful uh, consequences, then we can never challenge whether it be anti-Semitism or racism or other elements. My speech and the comments I made, and I think the, the comments that uh, Dr. Lipstadt referenced to were about the comments, not about the person. And in that regard, when you say that you describe those who stormed the Capitol on January 6th as people who, quote, truly respect law enforcement and love this country, but would worry if the mob had been Black Lives Matter protesters, uh, I think that's deeply, deeply problematic. So I'll ask you now to consent to include my speech of that day in the record for the context. I think it's also, without objection, I think it's also worth pointing out that the rioters on that day literally wore and bore Nazi symbolism, including T-shirts that said 6MWE, which stands for 6 million, those who perished in the Holocaust, wasn't enough. And a T-shirt saying Camp Auschwitz on one side, and on the other side of that T-shirt, staff, as well as Confederate flags and nooses. So maybe the senator wasn't afraid for his life, but every Jewish person in the Capitol certainly had a reason to be concerned for their lives. Um, so it is in that context uh, that I made dry remarks. And let me close on this. Uh, I, I have a record replete of nominees under the previous administration who made incredibly outrageous statements, and yet in each and every context, they were confirmed. And some of them really didn't have the background to be confirmed for the positions they were confirmed to. In this case, we have a nominee that is impeccable in terms of their knowledge of the subject matter, probably not just the U.S., but a global uh, expert and scholar. Uh, on the question of anti-Semitism. Um, I think if you can't call out an anti-Semitic trope uh, or prejudice, how in God's name are you going to do this job? Uh, your proven history of fighting against anti-Semitism here in the United States and around the world, I think, makes you uniquely qualified for this position. So... I just want to ask you two questions, Dr. Lipstadt. If confirmed, will you continue to call out all incidents of anti-Semitism, regardless of where these prejudices emanate from in the global community? Absolutely. Uh, because after I stop this position, I still have to live with myself. And regarding responsibilities, do you understand the difference between making comments as a private citizen versus as a public servant? 
Absolutely. I've, and I've learned a lot and already have begun an education with would-be colleagues at the State Department. That may be the hardest part of this task, but yes, I understand the difference. And do you commit to abide by the State Department rules for social media comments that you make in your official capacity guidance that was, I would note, routinely ignored and flouted uh, by the last administration? 110%. All right. With that, uh, I have questions for the record for the other nominees. I don't want you to think you're not the object of my affection, uh, but you are all going to serve in important positions, uh, and I look forward to your responses. Uh, as it relates to those questions and the questions of other members of the committee, they will be uh, open to the close of business tomorrow, Wednesday. Uh, I would urge members who have questions for the record to submit them. I would also urge the nominees to uh, give significant responses uh, to those questions so that we can consider your nominations before a business committee. And with the thanks of the committee, this hearing is adjourned.